Well, it's a joy to be here today. Uh, my name is Jotham. Uh, as Adam mentioned, I'm one of the pastors at Gospel Grace Church. I moved here from India in 2012. I moved here for grad school at the University of Utah. I did my computer engineering grad school over there. And while I was in grad school, I got connected with Gospel Grace. And the Lord has used the preaching of the word in my life and you know, one degree of obedience to another. And now I serve as a pastor over there. It feels like a blur, but I'm thankful for the Lord's hand in my life. As I was thinking of this passage, if I was to summarize what the Lord has done in my life, and if I wanted to give you one summary about myself, it would be this. I think it ties to our passage today. It's the idea that God provides for what He requires. I think of all that God has done in my life, it's because God provided every step of the way for what He required of me. So I'm thankful today and and as I preach here, as God requires me to preach here, I, I ask that Lord would provide for that as well. It's also a joy to be here because, you know, I think there's sometimes there are moments that remind you of greater theological truths. And one of those theological truths is the universal church, is, is we're brothers and sisters together in a place like Salt Lake City and Salt Lake Valley. That's that's so true. I got to visit with some of you, uh, specifically thinking of visiting with Stephanie. She just came up, Stephanie Platner here, and just a joy. She was there at the birth of my first child, and that, you know, it, it, it's a joy to be here with fellow brothers and sisters and just go, man, we're, we're together. And we're, I'm so glad for Church of the Valley being a light here in the valley, and I'm glad that I can come and serve and, and be with you and fellowship with you in singing and in the preaching of God's Word today. So let me just pray and give thanks. Um, one of the unique things about this passage, sorry, before I pray, I got ahead of myself. One of the unique things about this passage is that the earliest known fragment of the New Testament is something called the P52. It's the Ryland's Library Manuscript Papyrus. And it is, and it, it's from like uh, dated between, the, between 100 and 150 A.D., and that, the oldest known piece of the New Testament, contains this passage uh, on it today. So I was just thinking, what a joy it is that the Lord has preserved His Word for us. And today as we pray, uh, let's thank the Lord for that. I'm going to pray briefly, and let's jump into our passage. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Word that is a light to us. And I ask that today as we dwell on it, that you would help our hearts to submit, humble, learn, humble itself, and learn and grow. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right. Our passage today is a continuation of a larger narrative uh, of Jesus' trial. We've already walked through in the last passage, you know, what Pilate, the conversations between Pilate and Christ, and it's, here's, here's a brief, I'm going to give you an executive summary you know, that's what I'm going to do over here, of what has happened this thus far. First, let's just quickly understand who Pilate was. Pilate served as the governor of Judea from 26 to 37 AD. And he was actually known for his weak leadership. He had some huge blunders during his time as governor that, that required Caesar to reprimand him and write a scathing reprimand against him. So Pilate's inclination 
through all of this narrative that's unfolding is not one of strong leadership and authority. It's in fact a fearful inclination, wanting to keep his position, and that's what sets the backdrop of what is happening in this passage. So when he encounters this Jesus, you can see through what was read that there's a fear, there's a balance that he's trying to hit in this passage. He's a, he knows what's right and he's trying to do it, but he's also afraid of the people that are the mob that is over there. And Pilate encounters Jesus, who is the so-called political king, but in truth, what Jesus reveals that he's, he's a king of a very different kind. In a very true sense, he was the true king. In his encounter with Pilate, Jesus clarified that his kingdom was not of this world. It's not established by violence, but it is from above, residing in the hearts of those who followed him. And unlike earthly realms that are built on force, Jesus' kingdom was spiritual. His kingdom is present in this world, but is not of it. It's to be realized in the future, fully realized in the future. And it's a realm where truth is the main weapon, not physical arms. It's a kingdom where the truth of the gospel saves lives instead of taking them. Now, what we see in our passage today is an unfolding and the beginning of the ushering in of this kingdom. And the path to this kingdom is one that goes from suffering to glory. This was something that was foretold by Isaiah. I want to read a couple of excerpts from Isaiah 52 and 53. Just listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, he was pierced, stricken, smitten. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How could a kingdom be ushered in through this kind of suffering? The prophet keeps writing, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall bear their iniquities and make many to be counted righteousness. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. The way to glory that's unfolding here is a path that goes through suffering. And it doesn't make sense, but ultimately kings will shut their mouths before the true king and the infinite wisdom of his sacrifice. Martin Luther, the reformer, spoke of this. He spoke of a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And he spoke of theology of glory being one where believers see unmitigated success and prosperity. But Luther said that that's not what the Word teaches the Word teaches a theology of the cross and says that the believer, like Christ, 
walks through suffering in their life on their way to glory. And Luther emphasized that God's path to save humanity began with suffering, symbolizing Christ's birth in the manger and his death on the cross. And today our text opens up this path of suffering of the true king. It shows us that Jesus is a true king who was sent as a timely substitute such that you would have a triggered conscience today leading to repentance and belief. That's, that's what we're going to learn today, is that Jesus is a true king who was sent as a timely substitute such that we would have a triggered conscience leading to repentance and belief today. Let's look at that first part. Jesus as a true and timely substitute. I think it's important, Adam did mention this, I think it's important that as we dwell on this passage, we don't underestimate the power of Christ. Things are not swirling out of control. Jesus isn't a passenger on a bus that is being driven by someone else. Things are unfolding sovereignly as planned. And there are two verses that help you see this in this narrative section. One is verse 18.32, and the other one is John 19.10. In verse 18.32, it talks about how the Jews wanted capital punishment, but did not have the authority to do so. Because if the Jews had the authority to punish Christ, to execute capital judgment, they would have stoned him. But that was not how Christ was meant to be died to be killed. In his own words, he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So you begin to see the unfolding of God's sovereignty. The Jews had to go to the Romans whose mode of execution was crucifixion. And at one point in, in 1910, Pilate's investigation, Pilate is astonished. I am trying to get you off the hook. Why are you not cooperating with me? Will you not even speak to me? What is Jesus' response in verse 11, 1911? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. No one was taking Jesus' life from him. He was laying it down of his own accord. In order that he might fulfill the law, and offer himself as a timely substitute for us sinners. This passage presents that timely substitute in three beautiful ways. I want to talk through three ways we see Christ's substitutionary work in this passage. First, we see that Jesus is a, is a substitute through the Passover imagery. The Gospel of John, more than any of the other Gospels, nests Christ's trial within the Passover. This entire narrative is, is bookended by Passover. And in our own reading, we find John is trying to tell us, all right, what's happening in the Passover? And as the Passover lamb is being prepared by many around the city, Jesus is being prepared John wants us to understand that Jesus himself is the slaughtered Passover lamb. He takes great pain to depict the events in parallel 
to the preparation of the Passover taking place. In the eyes of God, this was the last Passover because the perfect and eternal Passover lamb was present. In the words of John the Baptist, if you remember from John, here comes the lamb of, the, lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This Passover lamb was being prepared to be slaughtered for sinners. As I mentioned, I work as an engineer, and I, I do chip design for a living. I love it. Uh, I, I think my engineering is like my introvert time that fuels me to be an extrovert when I need to be. I have a little dungeon office, no windows. It's perfect. Right? And, and in different sides of, of chip development, there are times where you're building stuff and you're simulating it, and then you send the chip out, and the chip gets manufactured, and it comes back. And, and, then, and now on my desk is this physical little, like, 5mm by 5mm chip that's sitting, and I'm testing it and making sure it works. I look at that chip, and that chip is real. And everything that I did before that, like months and months of stuff, were like these simulations that were a mere shadow of the real chip. It could have never been the real chip. It could have never done anything that this real thing on my desk now does. I think of Passover. The Passover and the festival that the Jews celebrated was a mere shadow of what was to come. Here, in our account, is the real Passover lamb. It was Christ. The picture of the substitute of Christ as the Passover lamb cannot be missed. Think about Exodus. Think about all the things that unfolded that first Passover in the book of Exodus. Think about how the slaves were delivered from bondage purely by grace alone, not because of anything they had done. Think about how it involved the firstborn. Think about it being a spotless lamb. Think about the blood-covered wood. Think about the freedom from a despot who made ruin. Think of the way that death passed over someone because they were under the blood. Scriptures make it clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus, his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Paul puts it this way, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But not only is this substitutionary image seen in the Passover imagery in the passage, it is also seen in this very curious phrase, behold the man. This is in John 19.5, and you can look down, find the verse, Pilate brings Christ, so Pilate's running out of ideas, He's trying to obey, you know, appease the mob. So he decides, here's what he's going to do. He's going to send Jesus away to be roughed up a bit. Maybe, maybe that will satisfy this bloodthirsty mob. So he takes them, the soldiers take him, and they turn a game out of it. They put a crown of thorns on Jesus. They put a purple robe over him. They give him a reed. That's a scepter. And they take turns 
bowing and mocking and striking Jesus in the face. You can almost hear their jesting, Hail, the King of Jews! And Pilate's had enough, so he, he takes Jesus and brings him back, bloodied and beaten, in front of the mob. And he says, Behold the man. Now, at a first glance, that phrase can almost mean nothing, and you could gloss over it. But it has a profound meaning. John, in writing this gospel, takes great pains to create a parallel between the gospel he's writing and another book in the Old Testament. Think of the beginning of John, right? In the beginning. Think of the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning. Scholars have called John a Genesis-laden gospel. So when we come to this phrase, behold the man, it may not surprise us that the exact phrase is used in Genesis and Genesis 3, 22. And it is used by God as a title spoken in the context of his announcement of a guilty verdict upon all creation. It's a title that is used to declare Adam's alienation from God and his impending death. The use of this title announces the first human life that now exists is in the state of depravity and under the curse. I watched the movie Ratatouille recently. I don't know if you guys... No spoiler alerts at this point. It's been out for, whatever, 20 years. If you haven't seen it now, there's nothing I can do about it. But one of my favorite scenes, I think in all movies, uh, and I remember this movie vividly because of uh, the last scene, you know, the climax scene, is where Anton Ego sits down and he gets this food made by a rat and, and he takes a bite of it, right? In that moment, he's transferred to, like, his mom's kitchen, and he recollects being innocent as a child, enjoying his mother's cooking. And that one plate of food, that one bite of food, connects these two moments in his life together. They seamlessly just come together. And when you think of this phrase, behold the man, I want you to think of it that way. I want you to think of the two most significant moments in all of history being connected together by one phrase, behold man. One that was talking about the alienation of man from God, the fall, everything being broken, depravity setting into all of creation, and the other, Redemption, the substitutionary work of Christ, remedying all of that, making right what was broken. In the Gospel of John, behold, the man announces the reversal of this death and alienation. Jesus takes on all of our sin, all of our depravity, and bears it to a death that we deserved. This is the second Adam who went to a garden, but instead of rebelling against God, he submitted himself to the Father and went 
to the cross as our substitute. So the phrase, behold the man here, is picturing Christ as our second Adam, bearing the curse with his thorns and reversing the curse. All right, so we've seen Jesus being a timely substitute in the Passover imagery in this beautiful phrase, behold the man. And finally, Jesus is seen as a substitute in the release of Barabbas. Now, Jesus being a substitute is a wonderful theological idea. And in these next few lines that I'm going to say, is, it's, is the essence of the gospel. So if you're new here, I'd say listen to this a little bit. Listen to this idea that we as sinners deserve penalty, the penalty of death. But Jesus dies in our place. And for all who believe in him, their debt is imputed on Christ. Their debt is placed on Christ. And what they get in return is his righteousness. It is an amazing exchange, a transaction that no businessman in his right sense would make, but God does because of his love towards us. I think of the idea of substitution. I think many of us here would say we realize that in a spiritual sense. But if there was one man in history who understood that more than anyone else in a physical sense, it would be Barabbas. You see, it wasn't just a spiritual substitution there. It was a physical substitution. Reading from verse 39. You have a custom that I should release a man for you at Passover. This is Pilate speaking. Do you want me to release to you the king of Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. From what we know of Barabbas, from you know, all, the, all the, the synoptic gospels as well as the book of John, he was a notorious prisoner. He was an insurrectionist. He committed murder. He, in John, he's called a thief and a robber. And if you were to put all of that together, you know, he was essentially someone who was conducting covert warfare against the Romans and killing people. So what we conclude, what we can conclude, at least on a baseline, is that Barabbas deserved to die. He was guilty. He deserved to die. But instead, he's released and Jesus is crucified in his place. Again, let's notice some of those the similarities here between our spiritual substitution and Barabbas's physical substitution. I think we should notice that Barabbas did nothing to earn his pardon. He wasn't set free because of exemplary behavior. He wasn't set free because there was new evidence that proved that he was innocent. He was set free on the account that Jesus was not. And he was set free while Jesus died in his place. The praetorium where Pilate and Jesus probably were was no more than like 1,500 feet from the Tower of Antonia where Barabbas was probably held. And you can imagine what's going through Barabbas' mind as he hears this angry mob 
mob close by. Pilate mutters something. He's 1,500 feet away, but he can't hear it. Pilate says something like, uh, which one of these two do you want me to release today? Bar Barabbas doesn't hear that. All he hears is Barabbas, Barabbas. He hears his name. And, he, and he's looking to see what's happening over there. They seem angry. Pilate asks another question in a muffled tone. What should I do with this king of Jews? Barabbas doesn't hear that. All he hears is crucify him, crucify him. Barabbas is scared. And he hears the guards come down with their keys and they open the door. In that moment, the guards say, Barabbas, you're free to go. Jesus has taken your place. That, my dear friends, is our story. When we consider Barabbas, we should consider ourselves. We too are rebels, deserving death. But by grace alone, Christ took our place. He died so we wouldn't have to. I think of the Passover, I think of the substitutionary idea of Christ that we're studying here. The Lord provides for what he requires. We just sang in Christ alone, the wrath of God that had to be poured out was poured out on Christ, not on us, because the Lord provided for what he requires the substitutionary atonement of Christ is at the heart of the good news, the gospel that we gather around and we proclaim. Everything else that is considered part of the Christian life is like a spoke that goes out of the hub of this truth. It was foretold by Isaiah in the prophets. It's narrated in the, in the gospels. And then in the book of Revelation... It's what they proclaim again, is worthy as the lamb who was slain. If you miss the substitutionary work of Christ on your behalf, you have missed the point of the gospel. Jesus, who was innocent, wore a crown of thorns, said, we the guilty might eventually wear a crown of glory. But this idea of Jesus being a timely substitute isn't just a fact. It is, it is heading somewhere. It is, it is leading us somewhere. It is leading us to consider how we are to respond to Jesus today. Because it awakens our conscience and triggers it, leading us to repentance today. When I studied this passage, I think it was, it was evident that the different people, the different you know, uh, people surrounding Christ, the Pilate, the soldiers, and the Jewish mob, they, they reflect and respond to Christ in very different ways. And I think in some ways it may paint a picture for us to consider as to how we are to respond to Christ. Notice how Pilate silenced his conscience. Throughout this passage, you can see that Pilate's fighting his conscience. 
And he tells her, shut up and be quiet. Don't tell me what to do. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He said this three times, John 18, 38, 19, 4, and 19, 6, that he says so himself. And his wife warns him that Jesus is righteous, as recorded in Matthew. But ultimately, Pilate tries to silence his conscience and hands Jesus over. And in Matthew, it says he washes his hands and hands Jesus over. Pilate wanted to silence his conscience and pretend that, that he was not implicated whatsoever. But the early Christian writings, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, do not, do not forget Pilate, and they implicate him in the crucifixion of Christ. Pilate faced the true king and the timely substitute, but he silenced his conscience and handed Jesus over to death. Pilate condemned a man that he found no fault in. He's afraid of the crowd, and instead of doing what is right, he does what is popular. I wonder if you're here today, and you've heard about Jesus, and you've heard from Jesus, and you know what he wants, and you know what is right, and rather than responding, you choose to silence your heart. You distract yourself with other thoughts, make excuses, convince yourself that you'll deal with things later. There'll be another opportunity to do so. And you turn down and tune out the conviction of your own heart. Pilate silenced his own conscience. The gods, on the other hand, there's something redemptive that happens with some of those gods. You see that in some parallel passages in Matthew. When, when, the, when, when Christ dies and there's an earthquake, they're filled with awe and they say, truly, this was the Son of God. Luke puts it this way. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. It seems, at least for some of their soldiers, their consciences were triggered and stirred by Christ, awakened and roused by the truth. Some stood in awe, others praised God, while still others confessed that he was the Son of God. I wonder if God is stirring your heart today. Maybe it's to trust Christ for the first time, to believe in him and receive eternal life. Maybe it's to return to Christ because you've been distant, distant and estranged. There was Pilate, there was the gods, but my favorite case study from this passage is the Jews and the angry mob. They're bringing the Son of God to trial and have him executed. Crucify him, crucify him, they cried out. Away with him. We have no king but Caesar. Here is God. Here are his people. It must have broken Jesus' heart to hear what the crowd shouted. The Jews had abandoned every principle that they, ha they had in order to have Jews Jesus killed. They forgot all mercy, 
forgot all sense of proportion. They forgot all justice. They even forgot God. In Isaiah, we find these words, O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. In actual records of Jewish prayers from the time and the recitation of the Hallel, these are the words. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Besides thee, we have no king, redeemer or savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in, every time, of, in time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. But on that particular day, those words were far from the mouths of the Jews. They cried, we have no king but Caesar. I don't know if you have a time where you have been deeply betrayed by someone, what your reaction to that has been. I know what my reaction has been, not Jesus' reaction. Instead, when people turn against him, Jesus turns towards them. Even though the Jews seared their consciences against Jesus, their story does not end there. And this is what is just mind-blowingly beautiful to me, is that here's this crowd of Jews that crucified Christ. Their story does not end there because in the book of Acts, we see Peter stand up and address these Jews. Can I read from you from Acts 2 and 3, just some excerpts again, to show you how this story did not end. This is Peter who stands up. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. This Jesus, God raised up. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. I, I have no idea what your story is, but I can probably put money on the fact that you have not killed Jesus. But maybe there are sins in your heart that make you feel that you could never be saved or redeemed. Here is the Jewish mob that killed Jesus. And God turns to him and says, repent, 
turn back and believe. This is only possible because Jesus was our substitute, our timely substitute. And his disposition towards us is not one of anger. It's one that stems from the fact that God's wrath is now satisfied and that we can now be children of God. Would you bow your heads? Join me in prayer. Invite the musicians to come up. As you think about the substitutionary work of Christ, you think about these different people in this passage. Who are you in this passage? When you think of the substitutionary work of Christ, what emotion does that dredge up for you? Is it one of joyful gratefulness? One of humility and thankfulness? Or even in this moment, you would rather not think about it and quiet your heart and distract yourself with something else. Or maybe today you're being called by the work of the Spirit in your heart to turn to Christ. Do not silence the Spirit. Turn to Christ. Just like Peter beckoned to the Jews, today you are being beckoned. Repent. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Lord, we thank you this day. Thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for giving us your son who died in our place that we may be your children. What a wonderful work of salvation, Lord. We could have never dreamt of or thought of. I pray that today we would not turn away from you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have our prayer team come up.